Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Laura. And I'm Amity. Let's get started. Okay, so we left off last time in Far From the Matting Crowd by Thomas Hardy. We ended with chapter 49. We talked about, you know, sort of the turbulent marriage of Bathsheba and Frank Troy. And then there's the death of Fanny Robin and Troy just like loses it. And he takes off and it appears that he is dead and has drowned in the ocean. And so it's really kind of a good place to pick up now because now we're in chapter 50. We're at a point where she's trying to move on from this. She's like decided I must be a widow because at this point it's now been almost a year. Yeah. So she's just figuring out her life. Boldwood is again starting to be in hot pursuit, although he's not like super forward yet. And Gabriel, he has become the sort of overseer of both Boldwood and Bathsheba's farms. So he's rising in the world, doing really, really well. Bathsheba is like kind of hanging on, trying to survive. And Boldwood, we don't even know what he's doing. And we don't know where Troy is. So we're at a good place to jump into chapter 50. Yes. I mean, you. I, mean I keep, every time we get into these, I'm like, this is where it gets good. This is where it gets good. <laughs> I know. It just kind of keeps building. Yeah. Keeps getting better and better. In chapter 50, they are at a sheep fair. Like it's an annual sheep fair in the fall. Lots of people are going to show up here. <laughs> Bathsheba and Boldwood are taking their sheep to this sheep fair. There's a tent on the other side of the fair that has like a performing tent. So they're doing a couple of plays in this tent. Yeah. And Coggin and Porgrass are they're trying to go see the plays that are going on. In the back of the tent, well, they think there's a tent behind it, maybe. Yeah, Sergeant yeah. Troy is in one of the dressing rooms. There he is. Back. He's back. <laughs> he'd gotten a job acting in one of these plays. What had he, it tells us what he'd been doing. So he had gone to the U.S. to work, as, this is hilarious, as a professor of gymnastics, mm-hmm. sword exercises, and fencing. Yeah. <laughs> it was a really good, like, from, mm-hmm. anyway, so he's been in the U.S. He comes back to England, but he didn't want to come home because he knew what was waiting for him. He was a little nervous. Yeah. Well, and I thought it was really interesting and just awful that it talks about how he would think about Bathsheba every so often. It'd be like, you know, if I wanted to, I could go back to this beautiful woman in England. And, but then he'd be like, oh, but her farm is probably failing. And then I'd be responsible for her sustenance. So he was like, I don't know if I want to go home. He had joined this traveling circus. They hired him because he was a good shooter and he plays the role of Turpin. It was just going to go on for a few weeks, but he doesn't have a plan of what to do after that. Now, Bathsheba wants to go see this play. Is he going to, I don't know, are they going to cross paths? She's waiting outside the tent. Boldwood comes up and starts talking to her and asks her about about her sheep. They talk about the play. Boldwood says that he'd like to go with her, go sit with her. And she says, then he says he's already seen it and so he's not going to stay with her. So he walks her to her seat and then he leaves. Now, this is just funny because Boldwood is just so, I mean, he, you know how it is when you're a teenage teenager and you want any excuse to talk to that mm-hmm. boy. 
Oh yeah. Right. So it's like, this is his, him going up and talking to her about his sheep. He's just like, what can I go talk to her about? Oh yeah. Just kind of showing his obsession with her again. Right. Totally his obsession. And also sort of his stunted growth in a way, because he's like in his forties and he's still acting like a teenage boy. And I mean, maybe to be fair, there's lots of men in their forties that still act like teenage boys. There's lots of girls that act like teenagers, but there's lots of grown women that act like teenage girls, but he's just like never had an experience like this. So he has a hard time knowing how to talk to her in a mature grown up man way. (laughs) Oh, I have a soldier sheep. (laughs) How's it going? Yeah. Yeah. That's just his excuse. He's like, well, let's go talk to her about the sheep. Yeah. So Troy looks out of the tent and who does he see? Bathsheba. Because one thing that we learned too, is that Boldwood had gotten the seat for her. And what she didn't realize until she went and sat down was that it was like this very, really nice seating and kind of like everybody could see her. Like hers was kind of the best seat in the house. So. There are people like standing. Yeah. So- around the edges right yeah he sees her and he realizes that if (laughs) this book is so funny when you really like go into it it's hilarious so he realizes that if he talks she's gonna recognize his voice and so he goes to the manager and he says how about if i don't talk (laughs) like i leave the speeches out and the manager's like oh nobody's gonna notice if you leave it out so go ahead so he puts on more makeup to try to disguise himself even more. Oh, well, actually, he tells the manager that there's kind of like an enemy. Yeah, like a creditor or yeah. something, I think I'm going to say. Out in the audience, and that's why he doesn't want to talk. So yeah, he puts on more makeup, and she doesn't recognize him when he comes out. During the second performance, though, he does speak. The bailiff, Pennyways, is in the audience, and he recognizes him and so he realizes like i need to make friends with this guy because he's gonna go tell her and ruin this for me so he goes let's see so he goes into the refreshment tent which must be like a different tent and he sees bathsheba on the other side of the tent and he sneaks around to listen she's talking to another man so he sneaks around to listen to her i mean this just cracks me up like every time i'm reading i'm like envisioning this as a play because it's hilarious uh, yeah, and it would be a great play. It would be yes. a really funny one. He's above the tent and he cuts a hole in the tent so he can watch her. But who she's talking to Boldwood and that's who he sees her talking to. And now all of a sudden he wants her mm-hmm. because he's she's talking to another man, right? Now all of a sudden okay. she's attractive to him. He's embarrassed that he's a circus performer. And so he doesn't want her to know he's embarrassed by this job. So he doesn't want her to know why he's there. Yeah. And I think it's really funny though, too, because he realizes he's like, I'm here in this County. People are going to know me. They're going to tell Bathsheba. So I'm going to have to reveal myself to her at some point. But he says that he wants to find out what her temporal circumstances are first. (laughs) Like he wants, yeah, he wants to find out how she's doing with money and her farm and everything, which whatever, maybe to like prepare himself. (laughs) I need to know, figure out what to do. Pennyways comes in and tells her that he has private information for her. She says she doesn't want to hear it right now. So he says, I'll write it down. So he writes it down on this piece of paper. And on the piece of paper, it says, your husband is here. I've seen him. Who's the fool now? Mm-hmm. Probably getting back at her for yeah. firing him, right? Because she has, yeah, she 
she has not wanted anything to do with him. And he's really bitter about that. And so he sees this as sort of his own little bit of revenge, I think. So he folds the paper and he throws it in her lap and he leaves laughing. And she doesn't look at it right now. So Troy hears all this from above watching her talk with Boldwood. So he sees that Pennyways comes in and is talking to her and wants to tell her what the situation is. Boldwood offers to destroy the note, but she says she should read it, even though it's probably not anything that important. She holds it in her hand and takes a piece of bread. And while her hand drops close to the tent, Troy slips down, (laughs) puts his hand under the cloth and snatches the note and runs away. And she screams. She's like, well, it just happened, right? Troy then goes looking for Pennyways. He's in a tent dancing somewhere. And he whispers to him, like, come, you need to come follow me. Probably just got to do more work trying to make friends with him more. And I think that that's kind of the bottom line. He's just like, this guy is going to rat me out. So we better strike up some sort of a contract camaraderie. Yes. It's just funny picturing him climbing down off the tent, reaching his hand under, grabbing the piece of paper. And she's probably like, what just happened? Yeah. <laughs> and it, I think it even says in there that he is sort of like laughing hysterically as he runs off into the night, especially as he hears her scream. He's like, oh, look what I got away with. What's funny is I think of the three suitors, we find out later that Boldwood and Troy They're both totally nuts. Yeah. Clearly there is one choice. So chapter 51 says Bathsheba talks with her outrider is the title of it. So Gabriel is busy. Borgrass is drunk. (laughs) Okay. But do you love (laughs) it? doesn't actually say he's drunk. It says he's suffering from his old complaint. (laughs) A multiplying eye. (laughs) He's seeing double again. In other words, he's drunk. Yes. So So Boldwood offers to ride home with her. And so she accepts it because Gabriel's busy and Porgrass is drunk. It's said in there that she'd rather have Gabriel ride with her, but Mm -hmm. decides I better be nice to Boldwood. You know, she's going to be civil. She feels bad for him because he likes her so much. And what do you think he does again as they're driving, as they're riding home? He asks, starts asking her questions about marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Can't let it go. Yeah, no. Do you think you'll marry again someday? Hmm. I wonder where this is going. I don't know. She says, I haven't thought about it. Yeah. (laughs) Right. She says to him, I'm not legally a widow. She does think that Troy is dead. In the back of her mind, she has a lot of doubt. Like she's like, I feel like I would feel differently if he was actually dead. So she's really not sure. And at this point, she is kind of using it as a way to sort of push Boldwood back to be like, Oh, but it wasn't totally proved that he's dead. So leave me alone. But she's like, I haven't thought about it. And then she says, I don't think I'm going to marry again. And Boldwood is like, do you remember when you fainted and I carried you away in my arms? And he says, first, he says he will never recover from his her refusal of marrying him. So I think he's just going to keep asking. But when he re- refers to the time when she fainted, I love this. Do you remember when I carried you in my arms into the king's arm in Casterbridge? Every dog has his day. That was mine. Like, oh, can you imagine if somebody said that to you in that circumstance? You're like, oh, okay. 
like I wonder I should have looked it up when every dog has his day like that's a saying we say now. yeah like, yeah I don't know what the origin of it was and yeah and she's just probably like I can just imagine like rolling her eyes like are you kidding me here we go and and she felt bad I think she oh um, she totally does like that is literally what leads to all of her actions from here on out is she feels really bad so, so. Boldwood asks her if she likes or respects him she says, well, it's kind of hard to, to use language that's for men to describe. I love that quote because he's like, do you like me or you do, or do you respect me? And she says, I don't know. At least I cannot tell you. It's difficult for a woman to define her feelings in language, which is chiefly made by men to express theirs. Boom. <laughs> like, hmm. This is a man's world. And how am I supposed to use your terms to describe how I feel? What is important to you is not as important to me. Like your needs are not my needs. So how am I supposed to express myself in the way that's ever going to be satisfactory to you? Yeah. yeah. Like I just can't, there's just no words. Yeah. There, <laughs> there are no words. So that's funny when you're trying to reject somebody. Oh my gosh. I can say whatever I want because my children will not listen to this. So when a child I have has been broken up with, I'm always like, just be happy you didn't have to be the one to do it (laughs) because it's so hard to like turn somebody down or reject them or, you know, it's just, anyways, I'm always like, I know you're sad. It's almost worse to have to be the one to like, because you feel so bad. And it could go on forever and ever with you being miserable because you don't know how to say we're done. Yeah. And how often do you just, I mean, like her kind of, we've talked about this before, but kind of like say whatever you have to say to make the uncomfortableness go away right now. Yeah. But then you have to deal with it again in a week or. And that's, yeah. And that really is an incredible lesson we are getting here is, you know what? So much of this could have been avoided. And it's not that we're saying, oh, Bathsheba, you were wrong. It's just a lesson to all of us. Like be assertive. Say no is no is no. Yes, I made a joke. And yes, that was stupid, but I don't have to pay for that for the rest of my life. I'm sorry. The end. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost better just be honest with how you feel right now. And yeah. Another funny story is made. We have trouble getting our daughter ready for school. She's Mm -hmm. fine. And my sister is a preschool teacher. So she gave me this great advice the other day. She goes, okay, so what happens eventually? She throws fits. She cries, right? We struggle and struggle and struggle for an hour. I said, what happens? If, she says, what happens at the end? I said, we finally just dress her, just force her to get dressed. She goes, do that in the beginning. Because you just yeah. suffered for an hour to get to have the same result. She's like, first of all, you just do it. But the whole time you do it, you talk to her about, I know it's really hard. I know you don't want to get dressed. Like you're having compassion for her. Mm-hmm. So like, if she would have just said to Boldwood, like, cause she constantly is telling him, I'll think about it. I'll tell you mm-hmm. in a few months, like pushing it off. Like, no, it's never going to happen. <laughs> she wouldn't have dealt with all that. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Because, and it's just because of her sort of wishy-washiness that he clings on to like the stupidest, smallest amount of hope, even though she's obviously miserable and has no desire to do it. Like to anybody else, they'd be like, okay, she really does not want to, but he's like, but there's a chance. Yeah. And so you're really hurting him. Totally. You would just say, no, I, this is never going to happen. He'd be sad for a few days and then he'd get over it or yeah, or whatever. I 
I mean, I do think that there's a bit of psychopathy in him just because he's like, would you repair the old wrong to me by marrying me? Like at this point, how long has it been since a little Valentine, you know? And the further you get from something like that, the more you're like, really? Are we, are we really still talking about that? It's a big way to repent for something. Yeah. Remember that one thing you did to me a long time ago? Well, you owe me marriage for that. <laughs> oh my gosh. So she, like I said, she said, it's difficult to define her feelings. Mm-hmm. She says, I do regret my behavior towards you. And he says, well, do you think you can make it right by marrying me? That's what yeah. And she says, I can't say for sure. I can't <laughs> say for sure. Yes, maybe, you can. Maybe in six years. I'm like, and I wrote down after he bugs her some more. She says that seems like a long time, but he says, nope, it'll it'll go by quick. It's short. He tells her, I, I am willing to protect you for the rest of our lives. And you might as well just agree with me. He says, you might as well just agree with me. I'm going to take care of you for the rest of your life. If you marry again, it's going to be me. Mm-hmm. Way to go, Goldwood. Just tell her how it is. And then she says, I can't imagine being married again. I can't imagine marrying again. I won't marry another man while you want me to be your wife. Like, why does she say these? Uh, why does she say these things? I know. Like, let's, let's think for just a minute, lady. So she hesitates, but agrees that in six years, she'll marry him <laughs> and, or she'll think about it. Right. She will think about marrying him in six years. And she says, just, let's just wait till Christmas. Oh, he, yeah, tell, yeah. he convinces her to answer him at Christmas. Right. To give him a definite, I promise or not. Yes. Which I mean, at this point, she doesn't even have the option of not basically he's like at Christmas, you will tell me that you promised to marry me. <laughs> when we kind of switch to like timing a little bit and Bathsheba is out working with Gabriel and she mentions Boldwood and Gabriel says, he's never going to let forget about you. This is just going to go on and on and on. And then she tells him about the promise that she made to him. That she's going to think about it for a few months. And I like this too. This is another thing we can talk about. She is worried that he's going to go insane if she tells him no. Yeah, yeah. Is she like trying to control the situation or control him? Well, because it does say very explicitly that this was no vanity on her part. This wasn't like, oh, he's going to go insane if he doesn't marry me. Like, you know, it was literally like she had genuine concern that he was going to go mad if she didn't marry him. So at this point, she has feelings of responsibility for his well-being. Yeah, like I think that we see that all the time. In fact, my one of my daughters was in a relationship with a young man. And after they broke up, and she actually was the one who did the breaking up because she just felt like it was not good. And hallelujah. he actually messaged her and was like, I think I'm just going to kill myself. And fortunately she's somebody that's like, no, like that is so manipulative. And I am not responsible for your mental health. And like, I have compassion for you and I, you know, you need some help, but that's not on me. Who's yeah. who have they dated for like six months or something? So sorry, his entire life is not now in her hands. But how often does that happen? And people stay in relationships because there's this threat from the other person that they're going to go insane or they're going to kill themselves or they're just going to go 
back to drugs or drinking or, or whatever. So super. Yeah, so how many stay because they're like, it's like, she feels like she's holding whatever happens to him in her hands. Like, right. If I she, tell him yeah. this, he's going to go insane and he might kill himself or, you know, yeah. yeah. In that situation, I would just be like, call his parents be like, this is not my problem, but I'm just letting you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and in, and in that case, I was like, he is just being extremely manipulative. He has never, just in the time that we knew him, it there was never any indication that he had issues that way at all. And he had a very close relationship with his mom. It was just. If I can try to get you back, this might be. This right. Might be. So yeah, she's worried about him going, literally going insane. Gabriel tells her that he's, Boldwood's been strange lately. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it really hurt that you promised him that. So Gabriel's kind of like on her side, like, yeah, you did the right thing. Bathsheba's wondering if it was the wrong thing to do, if it was like morally wrong mm-hmm. to kind of lead him on, right? <laughs> Gabriel's that, that he doesn't think there's anything wrong with agreeing to a contract. <laughs> Yeah. He's like, I think it was fine that you promised, but then he says the real sin in my mind lies in thinking of ever wedding with a man you don't love honest and true. So yeah, he's like, I think it's fine that you promised him for his sake, but you can't actually go through with it. That's where the sin would be. Yeah. And I like this too. She's like, I just wish I could give him some money yeah. and like this would go away. Like, could I just take care of this issue? There's I did. gotta be another way to to get rid of this problem. Yeah. How many times would you do that? Like, I always think about that. Like if I could just hand over $5,000 to lose 20 pounds, I would totally just do it. Like let's just find a way that money could take care of this issue. Oh, and then she says like, that's a lot. Not only if I marry him to make up for this thing that I did, which was like so little, I would have to be married to him, which would be awful. But I'd also have to be around all those women that are in his social class. I just think it's funny that that's what she's worried about. Gabriel says that it depends on whether Bathsheba really thinks that Troy is dead because everyone else thinks that he's dead. She says that she wants to stop thinking that he might not be like doubting that he's dead. I mean, can you imagine it'd be like, I just want to know, right? She just wants to know either way. He suggests that she go talk to like some authorities, right? The the parson, the lawyer, whatever. And she's like, well, when it comes to love, I'm just going to like trust my own opinion. Well, I love that whole exchange right there. They kind of like Gabriel implies that it is sort of a moral and religious issue. Do you go on and marry somebody else when you're not totally sure that you're other husband is dead, even though there's a lot of proof that he is. And in a lot of ways, I think that Gabriel is trying to let her know you have an out. This could be an out. So he's like, go talk to Parson thirdly. I think he could give you some good guidance and advice in this. And she's like, no, when I want a broad-minded opinion for general enlightenment, distinct from special advice, I never go to a man who deals in the subject professionally. So I like the Parson's opinion on law, the lawyers on doctoring, the doctors on business, and my businessman's, that is yours, on morals. And he's like, and on love, my own. She's like, I'll take my own advice on love, which isn't really getting her to good places so far. And so maybe I don't know about the credibility of her whole line of reasoning, but I personally look at it and I'm like, okay, I like that. I can respect that. So what Gabriel says that there's like something wrong with her logic. Do you want, do you see how he says that in there? Yes. 
he's like, I'm afraid there's a hitch in that argument. (laughs) And I don't think he's disagreeing with the whole argument. I think it's the hitch is where she takes her own advice on love. Because like I said, so far that has not served her very well. But I do see the value in not necessarily going to the person who has a vested interest in you totally buying their opinion on whatever their specialty is, you know, go to somebody who's educated and has done a lot of study, but maybe get their opinion on something other than their specialty. Yeah. Her logic is funny. And he's like, yeah, I don't know if that works. And then, so she pauses to tell him good night. And then she kind of says there that she wishes he would ask her to, I mean, she wants to marry him. Yeah. Well, yeah. She's kind of goes away and realizes she has sort of a sinking feeling because she's like, basically the only problem with that whole conversation was that Gabriel never put himself in the ring. He had not once wished her free that he might marry her himself. And he never said, I could wait for you. She'd kind of come to expect that he might do that, even though he'd left her alone. Like other than being there for her at all the important times, he'd never like, forced himself on her at all. He was just there for her. And so she suddenly finds herself being super disappointed that he's not like, well, I could wait for you too. Yeah. Maybe that's the moment when she's like, oh, maybe I do. Maybe I am interested in this one. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of, I mean, that's kind of how my husband's personality is. Just kind of quiet and in the background. And like, I was the one that was like pursuing him. I don't know. I don't know that he would have ever, I don't know. I don't know. Because I pursued him. So chapter 52, this, (laughs) I kind of love the whole setup of this chapter. First of all, it's called converging courses. Okay. So we have all these different paths coming to the same place. And the way this whole chapter is set up, it's set up in different sections. There's like section one. If you were watching it in a movie, it'd be like, here's the scene of this person. And then you're going to jump to the scene of this other person and then in a completely different place. And then there's a scene of another person go back to the first person, back to the second, you know, sort of jumping around a little bit. So the first part we learn that there's going to be a Christmas party. So we're at the Christmas season now. And so it's like, okay, things are going to happen now because Bathsheba has said, okay, well, if I'm going to promise you, it'll be around Christmas time. Well, deadline. Yeah. That's, that's her (laughs) deadline. Exactly. Yeah. Now, here's the kind of funny thing is that there's going to be this Christmas party at Boldwood's home. People don't really even know how to respond to that because it's so unusual. And you realize that he really has been this extremely standoffish, not super friendly guy. He doesn't have a lot of friends. In fact, some of the details, it talks about how there's all this care and preparation into like making the house look festive, but it doesn't have any of that natural joviality of a festive party. It doesn't feel festive, you know? It says it seems a lot more forced than really wanted. The next scene, the second scene, number two, we jump to Bathsheba's house. She's getting ready for the party and she reveals that she knows the party is being thrown for her and she's completely mortified by that. In fact, she really doesn't even want to go. She knows that Boldwood is expecting that she's going to accept his proposal. At this time, she's like, why did I ever even move here to Weatherbury? Like, let me just redo the last several years and I'll just never even come here, you know? Cause like, it's only led to one mortification, one horrible circumstance to another. 
So she's like, I wish this had never happened, basically. And Liddy convinces her. She's like, no, you need to go. And she tries to convince Bathsheba to wear something besides her morning gown. Because, but Bathsheba's like, no, I'm like, I'm still in mourning. And I know that the custom was like a certain period of time where they were kind of expected to wear black all the time. I'm not sure how long that period of time was supposed to be. I can't remember. Maybe it's a full year. I'm not sure. Bathsheba, even though she dresses in mourning, she still looks gorgeous. Liddy convinces her that she should go. I think she's um, worried about answering him in public. Yeah. He's like, why are you having a party? Like, and yeah. I mean, does she know what she's going to tell him? I don't know that she necessarily does. I think she's hating all of it so much. And I think that you're right. I think she hates the idea of like having this big display and this big party yeah. where she's supposed to make this grand gesture and say, yes, I promise to marry you. And that's just not her. And yeah. it's really not Boldwood either. That's why it all seems so awkward and out of place. Comical. Yeah. Then we flash back to Boldwood. He is very carefully getting ready for the party. It talks about how he never like cared that much about, you know, his dress, but he is now he's trying to look perfect. Gabriel actually comes in and Gabriel is like, I'm glad that you seem a lot better than you used to. Boldwood says, well, yeah, I am super cheerful. I'm, I'm very hopeful and blithe. And he's like, basically, he's like, I'm a little worried because it seems like whenever I start to get happy, there's something horrible on the horizon. So right now I am really happy. And then he says, does a woman keep her promise, Gabriel? And Gabriel's like, if it's not inconvenient to her, she may. They continue on this conversation, obviously talking about Bathsheba and Boldwood is kind of trying to get sort of an impression. Like, what, what do you think? Is Bathsheba going to come through and say, yes, I will marry you. But the thing about it, it's kind of funny because he starts out the conversation with Oak saying, you know, will a woman keep her promise? And Gabriel's a little bit ambiguous on his answer. By the end of it, like Boldwood has convinced himself that Bathsheba is a woman of her word. And if she promises to marry him tonight, she will be marrying him in five years, nine months, three days, or whatever it was. It was like, no matter what anybody else says, I'm not even going to listen to anybody else. I'm going to convince myself that this is how it is. I just think it's so fascinating because I think people really can design this narrative in their heads and convince themselves that it's true without, and they don't yeah. listen to anybody else. I mean, that's really human nature, but I think I've really observed this in, in some people lately that they have designed these narratives. No one can tell them any differently and you can't change people's minds anyway. Yeah. It's all, everything that happens to you is a story that you tell yourself in your mind. Yeah. And that's really what like you're learning in the coaching sessions and things right. aren't you? like, I mean, cause that's really what Jody Moore talks about all the time. Yeah. And it's like, do you like the story you're telling yourself? Like, what is it giving, what is it doing for you? Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes it's like, all you have to do, I mean, and there's a million versions of the story you could tell. So there maybe, are. Pick, maybe pick one that feels better. So. <laughs> I know. And it's, and on the one hand, it's like, you know, I firmly believe in objective truth, but with a lot of humans, there's a lot of things that are so nuanced. It's hard to say, well, yes, this is true where that person is concerned because there's so much to it. Like there's so much to people. Yeah. And you that, don't know you're not in their head. So you're not in their head. You can't actually yeah. know why they're doing something. Mm -hmm. And so the story you're telling yourself about why they're doing something might be painful. Yeah. 
and they're doing it no matter what. So you can't change that, but like you could totally change the story. I don't know. You can change the story and you might be right and you might be wrong. Who knows? And what is it going to, I don't know what it's going to change. Yeah. It doesn't even actually matter what is going on in there. Yeah. You get to tell the story you want to tell. Like I just decided I'm trying to eat better, right? This is like my eternal, if I could solve this problem, I feel like I would have no problems in life. <laughs> Not true. That's amazing. But like the story I tell myself in my, in my head all the time is I'm missing out mm. or. Oh, don't we all do that? With I'm food? not like, happy amazing. eating like this. And I'm mm. like, I'm going to change that story and just be like, no, I'm, it's totally fine. I'm not missing out. I'm here. I'm enjoying my family. I'm like, yeah. you know, it's just, if the story I'm telling myself about the way I need to eat, I'm telling myself, I don't like that food. I don't want to eat that food. I want to eat pumpkin pie all the time. Right. Yeah. It's painful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the story is painful, but I'm like, I'm just going to change that story and say, no, I love healthy food and I love feeling hungry because then I feel thin. <laughs> That's my Anyways, <laughs> example of like, That's hard though. That's so hard to find a story that is acceptable to you. That I'm gonna find it. That's my happy with this. Yeah. I just I just aired all of my food issues for (laughs) y'all. I think that most people could relate. I really do. Okay. So scene four in the same chapter, we're flashing to Troy now. And we find out that Troy has kind of been looking into the legal ramifications of his behavior over the past year. He wants to find (laughs) out, like, could he get in really big trouble for just like disappearing and like not telling anybody where he is? And he's sort of gotten really in with Pennyways, you know, and it's been a a few months since that fair. So they've been hanging out and it is amazing that nothing has gotten back to Bathsheba in all this time that he's there. So he's really lying low. And now he's, he sees, oh, you know, Bathsheba is gorgeous. She's amazing. I can't believe I left her all that time. And he also realizes that Boldwood is definitely in hot pursuit of Bathsheba. It, but what he knows, and I believe that Pennyway says it to him, is that Bathsheba really doesn't care for Boldwood at all. So Troy decides I've got to go and I've got to find out what's really going on. I love that. He's like, did I do anything wrong? He's like, he can't imagine that he could get in trouble because they thought he was drowned. <laughs> but Pennyways is like, well, changing your name. There might be a few issues. Pennyways doesn't think that she likes Boldwood for sure. Right. Right. And they do talk about Oak for just a minute. They never even entertain the idea that maybe Oak likes her or that she likes Oak. They're just saying that he's very competent. He's sort of taken over both farms. And so that's why Pennyways is like, well, you know, I better be nice to Troy because otherwise I'm never going to have a place on these farms. And that's what he really wants. Part five. Bathsheba is ready to go to the party. She's looking gorgeous. And then she says, I feel wretched at one time and buoyant at another. She's very much up and down. But she says to Liddy, no marrying for me yet for many a year. If ever, 
will be for reasons very, very different from those you think or others will believe. So basically she's like, if I ever marry, first of all, it's not going to be for several years and it's not going to be for the normal reasons. Basically it wouldn't be for love. And I think that's sort of her way of hinting to Liddy that like, even if she agrees to Boldwood, it's not because she likes him. It's because her reasoning is that uh, she's kind of been coerced into it. And it's, it's a contract. It's not it's not a, a bond of love at all. Now we jump back to Boldwood's house and he and Gabriel are still talking. That's why you really get this impression of like flashing back and forth, yes. back to Boldwood and Gabriel's conversation in Boldwood's house. He tells Gabriel that he basically wants to give all the running of the farm over to Gabriel. What I get the impression of is it's, it's almost like giving him a large enough share in the farm that eventually it's going to be his. And then, and this part, it kills me. He basically tells Oak that he knows that Gabriel has really liked Bathsheba all this time. And so what is the term that he uses? It's like, he says, the feeling I have about increasing your share is on account of what I know of you. Oak, I have learned a little about your secret. Your interest in her is more than that of bailiff for an employer, but you have behaved like a man. And I, as a sort of successful rival, successful partly through your goodness of heart, should like definitely to show my sense of your friendship under what must have been a great pain to you. So, so basically he's like, I know that you have, that you care for Bathsheba, but it turns out that I get her. There's a lot of credit that should be given to you because you've seen that I am the one that she is going to have. And so you've backed off. And so I'm going to be friendly back to you and let you have part of my farm, basically the running of the farm. It's like, oh my cringe. Good grief. <laughs> so the arrogance, the arrogance, exactly. And, and he's like, you must have backed off because you knew I was going to win. Yeah, exactly. Like there wasn't really even any competition. It's just, and I'm the successful one. And what I love about Oak is that he leaves and instead of being irritated, which anybody else would be, he's not the man he once was. I think he's a little crazy, which is, and I, you know, kind of going back to what we we're talking about before, you know, that's maybe the narrative in his head. It just happens to be kind of true, but it also keeps Gabriel like level, you know, to go, okay, maybe this guy isn't a total jerk. Maybe he's just kind of crazy. And he actually is. Um, now then here we go (laughs) back to Boldwood's closet. He pulls out a little box and in it is a ring that of course he fully intends to give to Bathsheba. And then he goes down and the party has started. Part seven, we're back to Troy. He is kind of like wrapping himself up, sort of disguising himself as he starts heading to the party to reclaim Bathsheba because he's heard about the party. So he's going there. He has this vision of basically of himself, like entering the party and everybody's like, you know, and sort of this grand entrance. Pennyways is like, I don't think you should do this. I don't yeah. think that this is going to go well. Why don't you just write her a letter? Yeah, just let's, let's skip the theatrics and just write her a letter. And, but then this is, this goes back to like, he's like, oh, but you know what? If Troy does get her back, I'm going to need to be in his good graces so I can eventually be in her good graces. So he's like, there's no telling to a certainty. Um, do as you like about going and I'll just do as you tell me. 
So Troy heads along his way and he's like, well, I'll probably be there about nine o'clock. So that was a super long chapter. There was a lot to it. It so, reminds me, like, I'm thinking of this as like this big event is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so we're build really up, quickly up, switching so that it's almost like we're watching all of these scenes happen at once so that this big thing can happen. Yes, it like, is. It's building. it's the buildup to the, the climax, really. And we get there in chapter 53. So chapter 53 is called Concuritur Horai Momento. <laughs> I don't know if I said that right. I'm pretty sure it's Latin. Anyways, so funny because before the super intense scene, we get the humorous scene. We get the comedic relief. We get Old Woods men gathered together with Bathsheba's men, and they're all like, they're like, okay, we heard that Troy is back, but have you guys seen him? We haven't like totally seen him, but we think we saw him, but not sure. They're like, well, we don't tell Bathsheba or Boldwood because we might be wrong, but they, they're like, well, we really hope that he's not back because he'll drag her to the dogs. Like he's, he's no good. They can all see that Troy is just dirt bag and they don't want him to come back. But then they say, well, what a fool she must've been ever to have had anything to do with the man. She is so self-willed and independent too, that one is more minded to say it serves her right than to pity her. Like, how could she have gotten herself in this situation? It's her fault, you know? And of course, like she's, she's culpable, you know, she had her choices to make, but that's not, I don't think that's also completely fair to say she deserved what happened because she let this guy bamboozle her or whatever. Yeah. They decide, like, I just think it's funny that they, they don't want to worry her for no reason. If it's true. Yeah. If it's not true, if it is true, they don't want they, there's no reason to tell her ahead of time. She's going to find out. Then they all agree that she's always been nice to them and has never told women's little lies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they do have this kind of odd respect for her. They, they yeah. totally do. And they don't want anything bad to happen to her. And they really don't want Troy to come back into her life. And they don't want to worry her unnecessarily. Like right. I say. So Then they sort of see it like Boldwood comes out. He's like pacing back and forth because it's apparent that the party has been going for a while, but Bathsheba is not there yet. So he's all concerned. Oh no, what if she doesn't come? Then just as he's out there, just worrying himself into a dither, Bathsheba comes down the road. One of the men is like, I thought he like got over her a while ago. (laughs) Like a normal person might have. And his man, Sam was like, you don't know much of master if you thought that. Yeah, she's like, I didn't know it was like that. Between yeah. <laughs> and so Bathsheba comes, they go into the party. And then all these guys that are still outside, they see Troy. And it is no doubt that it's Troy. He's there at the house and he's like looking in the window. They're like, holy crap. Okay, we maybe should do something now. And so they send, I think, Laban tall in. Yeah, he goes in and he's like, then he just comes back out without having done anything. Yeah. Yeah, he does. Well, he goes in and he's like, he could feel the mood was weird. And he says, when he comes back out, I didn't want to make it worse in there. (laughs) Like I could tell that things were. Yeah. Already kind of a strange feeling through the party. And so I didn't want to make it worse. He just felt awkward. Right. And he didn't know what sort of a reception there would be if he said, oh, by the way, Troy's here. You know, he leaves it alone. But then all the men go in. 
they're like, okay, well, we're going to do this together, right? And so when they come in though, they've kind of just missed Bathsheba and Bulba because Bathsheba is sort of taking a little break. So it's been like hours. And so she's taking a little break in this sort of little dressing room and Boldwood comes and finds her there. Here we go. She's like, I know why you're here. Yeah. Well, he comes in and he says, I've been meaning to talk to you. And she's like, yeah, I know. I've been bracing myself for this. <laughs> exactly. And he's like, you know what I want to say? And she's like, yeah. And and he's like, so you do give it? He says, the promise. And then, and then he decides to use words that he thinks will work for her, like more business-like words. He says, it's a mere business compact, you know, between two people who are beyond the influence of passion. He's, and it even says like, he knew that, this was completely false where he was concerned. He was like passionate about her, but he felt like maybe that would be a little more tasteful for her to think of it as more of a business contract, even though kind of a business contract is that. And then he says, it's a promise to marry me at the end of five years and three quarters. You owe it to me. And she's like, well, I feel that I do. Anyway, I I want like so much of it, like just really gets me. He's so manipulative. He talks about how he was in agony. You shouldn't, you wouldn't even let a dog suffer the way that I have suffered. Give up a little to me when I would give up my life for you. Like this is so little, just marry me. It's so little when I would give my life for you, you know, and how much you've made me suffer. You owe me this. You owe me this. You owe me this. Ah! And so- Finally, she says, okay, it must be since you will have it. So, and it even says she's fairly beaten into non-resistance. And in, in there also, he like goes to put a ring on her. She's like, no, we can't do that. And he's like, oh, just, just wear it tonight. Again, like you owe it to me. You owe it to me. She is sobbing. She like sits down in the chair and you can just see her sobbing, sitting in this chair. And he's like holding onto her hand, just completely in his own world. Like, hello, this woman that you say you love is absolutely miserable. But you're like, oh, well, cause I'm going to be happy. Maybe me. I can convince her to love me someday. I don't know yeah. what I thinking. She is completely miserable. He finally leaves her goes downstairs and realizes there's something going on, something going on. And the men come over to try to tell Boldwood something, but just as they are about to, and Bathsheba is coming down the stairs too, just as they're about to tell him, there's a knock on the door and this stranger comes in. Boldwood doesn't know who it is, but Bathsheba knows in, in, like immediately. And Boldwood's like, come in, come join the festivities. Of course, he's all, you know, lighthearted, everything. He's finally convinced her to promise to marry him. And it becomes apparent pretty quickly that it is Troy. I think that Boldwood still doesn't get it until there starts to be an interaction between Bathsheba and Troy. Yeah, he doesn't recognize him. He's like, come in, come in. Like he's yeah. super happy that they have another guest. And Bathsheba starts to like alter. She yeah. Turns pale yeah. and like grabs the railing because she's coming downstairs, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And Troy finally speaks and he says, Bathsheba, I've come for you. She's like, come on come with me. And she, she's like had to sit down at this point. She can't get up. So he comes over and he's like, come madam, do you hear what I say? And then suddenly they hear this voice from the fireplace. And we realize it's Boldwood because he has realized who it is that it's Troy. And he's like, Bathsheba, go with your husband. But she cannot move. Her mind was for the minute totally deprived of light at the same time that no obscuration was apparent from without. Troy like goes to reach for her and grab her and she screams, but her scream 
is sort of lost in the noise of a gunshot and smoke and smoke. Yep. yep. And when the smoke clears, Troy is on the ground and he is dead. Like he pretty, he dies like pretty much immediately. Yeah. It just talks about him basically like having this contraction of muscles and then he like sort of gasps and then he's dead. It was, it talks about how it was very close range. And so it just went right through him and um, kills him instantly. And obviously it was Boldwood. He turned around and grabbed a gun from over his mantle. It talks about how all farmers have guns over their mantle. He had two, he, he had grabbed it. He had shot Troy and then he tried to turn it on himself. And just at that instant, Sam, one of his men like intervenes and he ends up shooting the roof or something. He's like, well, there's more than one way for me to die. And he leaves the house and he walks towards Casterbridge. So <laughs> all that drama. So chapter 54 is pretty short. It's just, it's talking about Boldwood. He's just, you know, almost in a trance, just walking right to Casterbridge jail. He goes right to the jail, rings the bell, tells them what's happened. And it says that he walks the world no more. Like they're like, oh, okay, well, come on in. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then I love this though, because back at his house, you know, everybody is in just sort of chaos and bedlam, but Bathsheba is the calm in the storm. It says deeds of endurance, which seem ordinary in philosophy are rare in conduct. You know, there's things that it's easy to talk about, but in actual practice, who actually does those things? Very few people, right? And Bathsheba was astonishing all around her now for her philosophy was her conduct. She was calm in chaos and she seldom thought practicable what she did not practice. She was of the stuff of which great men's mothers are made. She was indispensable to high generation, hated at tea parties, feared in shops and loved at crises. And aren't those, they're those people in your life. Hopefully everybody has those people in their life that you want them there in a crisis because they're able to remain calm. You have to have those people who are able to see that things get done yeah. and um, that they are the reason amongst the illogic and the chaos. And that was Bathsheba. So Gabriel walks in. He had not been present for any of this. He walks in a few minutes later, like assesses the situation. And she's like, she's over there. She's got Troy's head in her lap. And she looks at Gabriel and she's like, I need you to go for the surgeon. Boldwood has shot my husband. He's dead and he's not actually going to need a surgeon, but I want you to go get him anyway. <laughs> so Gabriel goes into town. He gets the surgeon just because of one thing or another. Gabriel takes the time to like report what has happened to the authorities just to make sure that things are in order. And um, by the time he and the surgeon get back to Boldwood's house, Bathsheba and Troy are gone. So she had had Troy removed to her house so she could bathe him, essentially prepare him for burial, all these things. And both Gabriel and the surgeon are like, whoa, this woman is something else. The fact that she's able to just carry on and do what needs to be done, even horrifically emotional and chaotic time. In fact, Mr. Aldrich, the doctor, he says, this mere girl, she must have the nerve of a stoic. And Bathsheba is right there. She's like come out of her room because they were sort of like standing on the stairs of her house. She'd just come out of her room and Troy is in there, you know, all bathed and, and clean with his sheet over him. And she hears the doctor say this. 
She must have the nerve of a stoic. And she says the heart of a wife merely. And then at that moment, just everything gives way and she completely passes out. And it becomes evident that the surgeon wasn't needed for Troy, but now his services are needed for her. And that takes us to the end of chapter 54. We're four months later in March. So we were in December. Everybody is waiting for news about what's going to happen to Bullwood. And they're hoping that he's not going to be put to death. Like they all knew that he was insane, I think. And that that's why he did this. Yeah. They said everybody, it said everybody knew that he was acting weird, but only Bathsheba and Troy knew how really bad it was that, that he was acting so strangely. So this chapter is funny. It's short. They found several expensive like dresses jewelry cases um jewelry cases in his closet that had that it said Bathsheba Boldwood on them and the date for six years in the future that is kind of what sealed it for a lot of people they're like okay he's crazy he clearly thought that he was gonna get her and and was preparing for it yeah creepy creepy (laughs) it is it's really creepy good grief yeah, so Gabriel goes to the malt house and tells them that Boldwood had pled guilty and that he was going to be put to death. And the local people think this isn't right because he was he isn't morally responsible for his actions because mm-hmm. he was insane. They say, well, one example is how he neglected his crops. Like this just how didn't he was. happen. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the the people in the town they put in a petition for reconsidering how they're going to deal with Boldwood. And the execution was scheduled for two weeks later. And so on this is a Friday afternoon, Gabriel went to the jail to talk to Boldwood and say goodbye. And as he's leaving, he sees carpenters putting up a post, which would be to put him to death. So awful. Yeah. Like the gallows is what I imagine. Yeah. So when he comes back, the village kind of half of the village meets him as he's coming back and and he says, there's really no hope. Like, this is going to happen. Just probably because he'd seen the post go up. So Bathsheba's at home and she keeps asking about the news. But Gabriel <laughs> hasn't come in and talked to her yet. Liddy says that if Boldwood is put to death, Bathsheba's going to lose her mind. Yes. And feel responsible for it. And then finally, Lobin Tall comes in and says, he's not going to die. They, they canceled it. They're just going to keep him in jail. Confinement is going to be his punishment. So yeah. thank heaven, because otherwise we would lose the end of the story because Bathsheba would go crazy. <laughs> she would also be insane. This had to happen. Okay. So chapter 56, she keeps getting better. She's just getting better and better. It's, I think it's getting to be summertime. But yeah. um, I figure it's around July because they talk about it. Like July and August. Yeah. The Christmas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's summertime. So she still likes being alone, but is feeling better. She's starting to spend more time outside because it's summer. For the first time she since December, she goes on a walk out in the orchard and she hears some singing coming from the church. So she kind of goes over to the graveyard. This is the first time she's been over there. And she sees Fanny's tombstone, but under it, it says that Sergeant Troy, Francis Troy, is buried with her in the same grave. Yeah. Which is like a knife in the heart and then twisted. It is. But I think that she, it talks about how she had actually ordered that inscription for for Frank. I think that she did know that. Oh, was like, mm. that was awful nice of her then. I uh, yeah. 
she's listening to the children sing in the church and she starts to cry, wishing that she could be young like the children and innocent and not have had to deal with all of this. Yeah. Well, and also it just, just from, as I was reading it, I was like that music, they were singing lead kindly light, which is a beautiful song. And you hear children sing it. And at that moment, it just hit different. It was just like suddenly all of her emotions and her pain and her suffering from the past years just bubbles over. It talks about the swelling in her throat, which we all know, and the, you know, overflowing at her eyes. And she, it just hit different and she broke down. That happens to me when I'm listening to music sometimes. Like (laughs) me too. (laughs) I'm usually listening to talking, but then occasionally I'll get in the mood for music, which like lately is Christmas music. Right. And then I I just like, the Christmas music or the whatever, it just makes me start thinking about things. And then I'll just be like, lose it. I know. It's just funny. Music is powerful. Um, So she sees Gabriel who says that he's going into the church because he's one of the bass singers. But then he's like, I don't know if I'm going to go in tonight because he doesn't want to lose Bathsheba. She's, he doesn't want to turn her away or he's worried she's going to leave. They must have not seen each other for a long time. Cause he says that like, we haven't seen, I haven't seen you for so long, but he's been b- meaning to ask her about a business matter. So he's thinking about leaving England and going to California because he doesn't want to manage Boldwood's farm. And she's like, I can't be without you. How would I take care? You know, the, I think it said in there that she hadn't been to the sheep market at all since Troy's death. And so he'd been doing that for her. And she's like, how could you leave me when I'm, I'm so helpless. Like I need you. He says, that's why I need to go. Yeah. It's because of that helplessness that I have to go, which Um, shows you that he is the complete polar opposite of Troy and Boldwood because he would never take advantage of her in her helplessness. And they wanted her no matter what. Yeah. Well, and they, they kind of wanted her to be helpless. Yeah. They sort of pushed her to be that way so that they could take advantage of her. So he leaves and Bathsheba is like so upset that the one person that she's relied on all this time is now abandoning her also. And then weeks go by and he, Gabriel is not paying any attention to her. He's not really paying attention to her farm. And she thinks he must hate me. I must have done something here. It's again, that narrative that she's built in her mind. She's decided that he must despise her. And now she feels like everybody else is treating her weird too. And so she's like, Gabriel must be the ringleader of this. What have I done? This is horrible. You know, she's built up this whole awful self-sabotaging narrative in her mind. Yes. So he's avoiding her, which makes her think that he hates her. So Christmas comes again. She's walking from the church, hoping to cross paths with Gabriel again, or probably always. She had been in the church and had heard him singing. And so she knew he was there. (laughs) When he comes up the path, he looks the other way and then like disappears. (laughs) Again, avoiding her. Uh, Yeah. Pain. Painful. Yes. So the next day Bathsheba gets this formal letter saying that he's going to be gone by Lady Day. And she's so upset that you know, she's upset that he doesn't love her and is wondering how she's going to do this without him, what she had done to upset him. After dinner, she decides to go to his house and she asks to speak to him. And he's like, I don't have the right kind of house for you to come in and visit with me. She's like, I don't care coming in. So then she just explains, I feel like I've offended you. I can't let you leave without telling you because I need to know what the situation is here. Why are you avoiding me? 
he says, well, that's not the case. And he's decided not to go to the United States. Mm-hmm. He's going to just go to a different farm. To, to Little Weatherberry. And I'm not told, I'm like, I think Little Bit Weatherberry Farm is Boldwood's farm. I okay. think it is. But- so Gabriel said that he would continue to watch, he would have decided to continue to watch over her farm if there wasn't all this gossip about them. Mm-hmm. The gossip is that he had been waiting around for her to agree to marry him. That paints him in not a very nice light. And he's like, that is not me. That's not what I'm going to do. Don't you want to just shake him though and just be like, why did you not just ask her to marry you? (laughs) I don't know. This is all seems so unnecessary. It does. But at the same time, like he had been rejected hardcore and she'd continued over the years to say things like, oh, you're like a brother. Oh, you know, I would never love you, but you're telling him to leave or telling him to leave, you know, all these things. And then making these stupid choices with these other men. And then, you know, her heart's broken and he's, he has sense enough to be like, okay, we're going to like, just let her lie for a little while. You know, I don't know. I think all of it was kind of necessary. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I guess I just wish he would have like, I don't know, not the last few months. Why didn't he just step in and say, yeah. I love you. I want to marry you. Well, um, yeah. She thinks that's absurd that people would be saying that. And he agrees. And- well, because she says that's absurd. It's too soon. But he latches on to the part where she says that's absurd. She's like, no, 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 no. I mean, it's too soon. Let's talk, talk about that. <laughs> right. It, cause it's going to, it can happen. Just, it, you know, like give it a minute type of yeah. thing. Yeah, was it probably, I mean, just because of what they've been through, she's like, I need it sometimes. Gabriel says that if he only knew whether she would marry him, whether he could marry her, yes. like she needs to know. And she says, you should never should have sent me that cruel letter. <laughs> He's like, I had to be careful. I'm like an unmarried man. Everybody knows how I feel about you. This hasn't been easy on me. <sighs> Not at all. He's like, I had to do it this way because I have to be careful. So she gets up, says that she's glad that she came and talked to him, but she didn't come there to have this conversation, I guess. Mm-hmm. She just wanted to know why he didn't like her or why he was upset with her and leaving. So he walks her home. And now I, you're going to have to help me with this because Mike, they walk home. They don't really talk about their feelings, but then in the next chapter, they're getting married. So do they decide well, to get married? They do because you, because really like that whole conversation at the fireside, he's like Bathsheba. He looks her long in the face. He comes closer. He looks at her tenderly, whatever he says, Bathsheba, if I only knew whether you would allow me to love you and win you and marry you after all, if I only knew that. And like you say, she's like, you'll never know because you never ask. And then it's like, oh, well then of course, you know, there's sort of this understanding. He gives this low laugh of joyousness. And you're right. Like he gives this explanation of the letter, but, but then it's, she says, how glad I am that I came. Let's see. I've danced at your skittish heels. My beautiful Bathsheba says Oak for many a long mile and many a long day. And so, yeah, it may not be that there's this overt, will you marry me? Yes, I will. But it's like, it's, there's, there's this understanding there, you know, between them and (laughs) yeah. Not necessarily, but it's just, it's sort of implied rather than declared. I don't know if you're going to talk about it, but I love that last paragraph of this chapter. To me, that's like best part of the whole book. Okay, go for it. 
Okay. So it does talk about them walking home together and they don't, they don't speak about their mutual feelings because those are unnecessary between such tried friends. They have this relationship that is not this Twitter pated fluttery kind of love. It's It is the love that comes after years of trial. So here's what he says. Theirs was that substantial affection, which arises when the two who are thrown together begin first by knowing the rougher sides of each other's character and not the best till further on. It's like you see the worst first and then you start going, oh, but look at all this. Look at all this. Oh, he's actually amazing. She's actually amazing. You know, the romance growing up in the interstices. I don't know if I said that right of a mass of hard prosaic reality. They've been through some crap and mm-hmm. they've been there through that crap together. This good fellowship camaraderie usually occurring through similarity of pursuits is unfortunately seldom super added to love between the sexes because men and women associate not in their labors, but in their pleasures merely. It's like we often don't have the best relationships between men and women because we do things together that are fun instead of, which is not bad, but we also need to do the hard things together because that's how you really get to know somebody. And that's what Bathsheba and Gabriel have done all this time. They've done the hard things together. He says, where, however, happy circumstance permits its development, the compounded feeling proves itself to be the only love which is strong as death. That love, which many waters cannot quench, nor the floods drown, beside which the passion usually called by the name is evanescent as steam. I love that. And my thought was that Bathsheba has now experienced at least three types of love. Mm-hmm. She has experienced just the passionate love that overrides all logic and feeling. She's experienced this sort of coerced love where Baldwin just sort of forces her into it. And, and it, she's like trying to make herself get there, which is awful. And now she's experienced actual true, real love, which most couples have to work for years and years and years to get to, even when they're already married, because a lot of times they start out with sort of the passionate part of it, but then you have to work to the real true true. love. I think it's amazing. That's great. It's, it's paragraphs like that, that I'm like, oh my gosh, deep. You have to really, really read it closely. So yeah get what they're, what he's trying to say. He's when I'm telling people what we're going to do, you know, that we're reading this next, I'm like, it's hard. (laughs) It's a hard book to read. Like, and that's kind of was the idea of doing the podcast is like, I struggle with this kind of stuff. And I would love to have a podcast that I could listen to that would explain it. So I'm like, Oh yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So the last chapter we made it 57 (sighs) chapters. A long um, book. It's almost a 400 page book, probably depending on the, the public hard reading. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's called a foggy night and morning and then conclusion. So basically we're going to have a wedding. Mm-hmm. She wants it to be quiet, secret. She thinks it's inappropriate to have it be big. Those are her wishes. Now they, so they want it to be secret. They want lob in there, but because he's been made a clerk, like he's been made okay. a clergyman. <laughs> it's he's like so now. random. Yes. What does it say exactly? He'd lately been installed as clerk of the parish and was yet in mortal terror at church on Sundays when he heard his lone voice among certain hard words of the Psalms, whither no man ventured to follow him. He's like, oh, is this me talking? Oh, crap. (laughs) (laughs) 
That reminds me oh. of more girls. Have you ever watched that show? Yes. So oh the my guy, God. the one guy that's in it that plays like he has every job. He's like the one that moves around the town and has like Kirk. Yes, favorite. Which is funny because we just watched him in a show where he was a horrible. I can't. I'm not gonna. Say oh, it. really? Yeah, I've never seen him in anything else. He was like in a horror show, and I was oh. like, "Oh, this is interesting. A little different than Gilmore Girls." Love it. I'm not gonna out us. I'm what we were watching because, and I can't remember what it was called. Anyways, anyway, so the, so they need him, but his wife is such a gossip that if they go tell her if they go tell him in front of her, everybody's going to know by morning and they'll probably all be at the church. Yeah. So they come up with this scheme, how they're going to tell him they're going to bring him outside or Coggins going to do it. It's going to bring him outside and tell him. So she doesn't hear they go there and she's not there. So he makes up this story about why Lobin needs to come to the church in the morning. Yes. On the spot. He's like, uh, uh, let's see. How could I get him here? Yes. And um, I do love that, like Gabriel was going to do this all by himself, but he came across Jan Coggin on the road and Jan Coggin really has been this true friend that's been there for him through everything. So Gabriel does confide in him and tell him that they are going to get married. And then Jan helps him with this whole scenario. Yes. I, I really love that. The good friendship. Yeah. He's been along. He's been here all along. So then we go back to Bathsheba. She can't sleep. She gets Lydia up to brush her hair and she tells her, Gabriel's going to come and eat with us later today and forever. <laughs> forever. Can and you come forever. for dinner? Yeah. Can you come and forever? Then she kind of whispers into her ear exactly what's going to happen. They're going to go get married. So, and Lydia's all, woohoo, you know, yeah. Yeah. this is like the, the party. So 10 o'clock, Gabriel comes and knocks on her door. They go to the church arm in arm. This is the first time they have walked arm in arm mm-hmm. through the fog. Can you picture it? Like, <laughs> yes. Arm in arm through the fog. So sweet. And then it happens. They go and they get married with Coggin and Lobin. And I think Liddy, is Liddy there? Yes. She's there. And then later that night, they are sitting down at Bathsheba's house and they hear a cannon and trumpets. They go out to the porch and they see all these like hear all these instruments and Mark Clark and Jan Coggan have gotten the village to come and perform for them. And he, he thanks them. And then they tease him because he said he called um, Bathsheba, his wife too easily. And <laughs> the end. Yeah. We're done. <laughs> and they thought it was so sweet. You know, they, everybody loves them. And it's just, it's the sweet village that. It's like, we're going to get together and celebrate them. They didn't want a big to do, but we're so happy. We're going to celebrate it anyways. Them. Yeah. It's really, really sweet. So she, so. yeah, that was a long book <laughs> and a lot. So good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So much. And yeah, just so much to really digest. There's so many times like that I w- have shared a quote and I'm like, I love this and it's amazing and deep and I can't even really explain it. And so I think that there is, there's just a lot to sort of dissect and think about and, um, why is it, it's so good. And so wise. I loved getting going deep just because it's like, I'll never, I mean, I have this book in my mind. Like I know, I don't know. This is the second time I've read it. Mm -hmm. I I had no recollection 
of what had happened in it. I, you know, I, in the beginning I was like, oh yeah, there's three guys, you know, and I didn't remember the ending, but I think I always will now. I mean, cause we yeah. studied it. <laughs> yeah, totally. On that note, I wanted to, so I told you that my book, this version is pretty old. I want to say, when was it published? Oh, it doesn't even show, but quite a while ago. And the afterward, it says something that I thought was really wise. It says to read the work of any famous author is in itself something of an art. And I think we'd have to agree Yeah, to read the work is an art. First of all, to really strive to get into their head, get into the culture, get an understanding of what it is they're trying to say. But it also says a reader must develop the poise of courage in order to stay the judgments of his elders until he can read the work for himself. I'm not sure who does the afterward. I'll have to look that up. But so basically, oh, it's James Wright from the University of Minnesota. So basically to say, well, all these people say it's amazing. I'm not going to make that judgment until I've read it. I'm not going to go into it thinking it's amazing. Or all these people say it's just a copy of other great works. Or he's really not that good. He's just, he thinks he's good. Or so you have to like withhold judgment until you've read it for yourself. I think that's really true. And I, I think I'm a little bit baffled that some would think that Hardy was not that great of a writer or that it's, it's irrelevant or anything like that. Cause I just, I love it. I think it's yeah. so fantastic. Yeah. It was really, it was fun to deep, to dive deep into it and study it. Yeah. Now I feel like I know this book. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. I asked some people because I couldn't think of any books that would be similar to this, what they thought about mm. similar books. And I got a couple by George Eliot. Have you ever read George Eliot? So like Silas Marner? Yeah. So that was one. I have actually not. Adam Bede? Maybe? Bed Day. I don't know. So those were the two books that people recommended. And then another person said, which you've read the native return of the, oh, native. the return of the native, but that was another one by him. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think that that's the main thing that I would recommend is just reading more by Hardy reading tests of the Durbervilles reading return of the native. I think yeah, those would be my top recommendations after this one. Yeah. I mean, I can, I was like, I was trying to rack my brain about books, modern books that were similar and nothing was coming to me, <laughs> but yeah. So I asked online, I was like, Oh, help me out here. So yeah, maybe someday we could do a George Eliot book. Yeah, we should. Did you have anything about Thomas Hardy? So not a ton other than just, and that's the, I need to spend more time just researching authors. Other than just kind of what we talked about before. So he was born on Egdon Heath near Dorchester. He was born in 1840 and he died in 1928. He was actually homeschooled by his mother before he started attending grammar school. At 16, he was apprenticed to an architect. And for many years, architecture was his profession. He did write poetry during that time. And Poetry was his sort of first and last love. His first novel was written in 1867. So he was about 27 when he wrote his first novel and, but it was rejected. So he destroyed the manuscript. Oh no. All right. Well, heck with that. His first published book book was printed actually at his own expense and was a financial failure. But by 1874, he was convinced that he could earn his living as an author 
And he retired from architecture. He took a big risk. He retired. He got married. Sorry, he retired from architecture. He got married and devoted himself to writing. So he was quite a bit older. He was like 34 when he got married. So he just continued to write from there. But in 1896, he was very disturbed by the public outcry against his two novels, Tess of the D'Urbervilles and Jude the Obscure, because I haven't read Jude the Obscure. I would really like to. But people didn't like Tess of the D'Urbervilles. And I think same thing for Jude the Obscure because it dealt with sexual issues. And the thing is about it is it's not explicit. No. It like at all, but it does talk about some of the issues that women faced, especially. And so he was like, okay, people hate me. Sorry for bringing this up, you know? So then he was like, well, I'm just going to write poetry for the rest of my life. But we don't know him for his poetry. We know him for his amazing books. So, and this guy who did the afterword, he said a lot of people thought that he would just go into obscurity because they felt like, oh, he's not as good of an author as some others. And his are like a copy of George Eliot, who's actually a woman. You know, he's not going anywhere, but it had his books have stood the test of time. Don't take anything for granted. I mean, I just think about like composers too, but they don't find success until after they die. Yeah. And, and artists. Yeah, sad when that. Yeah, it is. I mean, he found success, but then he got canceled. <laughs> yeah, he did. You shouldn't be talking about this. How dare you? And again, like again, like what we talked about, I think that he did what I read somewhere, maybe it's in here, is how he did not really love organized religion. Or maybe I just drew that from like everything he says in his books. I think he did not love organized religion, but I think that he did have a strong belief in God. I think there are so many, first of all, Bible references in this book, but also just his descriptions of nature. And when he talks about how God was palpable in the country. And I just heard this poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning the other day. And I was like, why haven't I known that before? It's so beautiful because as soon as I heard it, I thought of Thomas Hardy's books. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, it, it says, this is part of the poem, earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush a fire with God. And only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. First of all, it's like such a powerful, beautiful piece of poetry itself. But I think that's Thomas Hardy, like his books, he just expresses his love for God in his descriptions of nature. And it's like, he is worshiping in that way. He notices. And so he's taking off his shoes in the way that he so carefully and immaculately describes everything. So yeah, made me, I mean, it makes me want to read more stuff by him. So first of all, let's announce our next book, the next book. So in two weeks, we're going to start the wind in the willows. Um, next week, we're going to do a bonus episode or a, I don't know if we want to call it a bonus episode. You're going to call them the in-between episodes. An in-between episode. Yes. Yeah. About our favorite podcasts. And I'm really excited because I'm excited to hear yours and I'm excited to share some of mine. Yeah. So. That'll be fun. So some, some might be book related and some might not. Yeah. They're just anything. Yeah. That'll be really fun. We're so happy you joined us for this episode. We hope you'll join us next week as we talk about our favorite podcasts. If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. 
We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share our podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books. As Thoreau says, read the best books first or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week.